it is good to be with you this morning. I <clears throat> just got here a few minutes ago, obviously right before the prayer, um, having preached over at Hope Church, and um, thus is the last week of uh, before Easter, and so therefore the last week of Lent, where Pastor Will and I have been kind of um, sharing the pulpit with one another, and it's been a, a good experience for us. I hope you have enjoyed hearing from Pastor Will on occasion, um, and him sharing a good word with us. But yeah, we've come to Palm Sunday. Next week is Easter, and um, spring is in the air, and life is um, moving quickly as ever. Um, I have my, uh, my water bottle here just in case. When I was over at Hope, I had like a tickle in my throat, and then it turned into a full-blown, like I could barely talked. Jonas was concerned about my well-being. Not really. Um, <clears throat> but Fortunately, somebody there got me a water bottle, and I made it through, but um, I've just been messing with allergies. But this, this week, I want to talk um, about who we welcome and who we make uncomfortable or who we don't welcome. And I want to start with a story. This isn't a story that I'd come up with. I don't think it's a true story, but it's one that gets shared around uh, social media. People message it to me probably once a month. Um, you know, people discover it, and they're like, hey, this is a good pastor. I'll enjoy this. Um, it's a story about a new pastor. He got called to a church that had 10,000 members. Have you heard this story? He got called to a church of 10,000 members and was invited um, for his first Sunday to come, and they were going to introduce him, and there was going to be a, a great reception for him as coming to be this new pastor of this church of 10,000 people. Um, but instead of showing up, you know, all clean-cut, suit and tie, whatever, or hip, trendy, new pastor, whatever, he showed up dressed like a homeless person and just kind of wandered into the sanctuary and just kind of wandered around. And some people made it clear that he wasn't necessarily welcome uh, in indirect ways, you know, maybe directed him someplace else in the sanctuary or they moved themselves away from him. But um, he came looking like he's been living on the streets for a while. And then other people were more direct and told him he, needed, he wasn't welcome to sit by them or he needed to go someplace else or they sent him to go talk to one of the other pastors because that's what you do if you have a problem is you send a pastor will fix it. Right? And so that's the way that the story goes. And then so he, he's wandering around before the service and they're not making him feel welcome at all. But then comes the time where the, the board secretary gets up and says, I want to introduce to you, it's my privilege to introduce to you today, our new pastor, doctor, so-and-so. And the homeless-looking man gets up from the back and makes his way forward. And you can see the look on the people's faces. They realize what's happening. And the, the point of the story, I think, and may, there are probably a few points we could take away, but <coughs> the point of the story is when they thought he was coming to be their pastor with status and title and everything, they cheered and applauded and were super excited to welcome him as his pastor of this huge church. He must be important. But when he was looking like he was living on the streets, the congregation wasn't so eager to welcome or make him feel comfortable. And we're going to look at a story in Scripture today that's probably familiar to many of us, but I want to turn a new lens and ask some new questions about it and see that Jesus was dealing with something similar in the temple. And so we're going to be looking at Matthew uh, chapter 21, verses 12 through 17. And like I said, this is familiar text that gets shared a lot and actually um, is used to justify a lot of different types of behaviors in the church, but we'll get to that later. Um, but Matthew 21, 12 through 17, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. 
He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he was doing, or he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Did you hear what these children are saying, they asked? Yes, he replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. <coughs> we are thankful that you continue to speak, um, that these words from 2,000 years ago are brought to life by your spirit, and that you speak them to our hearts and to our minds. May they be written on our hearts in such a way that we um, embody them with how we live, and we share them with what we say and do. We thank you and love you. Amen. Amen. So the kind of the famous quote, the famous scripture that comes out of this text is Jesus' statement that you have, <clears throat> my house is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of robbers, right? Like this is, that's kind of the, the turning point of this whole story is this declaration. But did you know that Jesus is quoting from two prophets when he says this? He's taking two different prophets from the Old Testament, taking words out of their prophetic writings and smushing them together to make one bold statement. And his statement is a, is a condemnation that carries a lot of weight. So first he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 7 when he says, you have made my house a den of robbers. So he takes that out of the text of Jeremiah chapter 7. But then he takes that idea of, you've made my house a den of robbers, and he combines it with Isaiah chapter 56. And Isaiah 56 is one of these powerful, prophetic texts, and I'm going to read just a portion of it um, to give you a flavor of what Jesus is tapping into. He's speaking to religious leaders that would know Isaiah 56. So when he says this, they would know exactly what he was talking about. So here are the words of Isaiah that Jesus was alluding to. This is what the Lord says, Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, <coughs> and who, who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. And so Jesus uses Isaiah 56, which says that the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. Now, the word here, nations, doesn't mean countries. Um, it means people groups. It means people. Some translations will actually say people instead of nations. So don't think, oh, it's, you know, it, Jesus is talking about countries and governments. He's talking about it's a house of prayer for all people. And then he uses the example of the most vulnerable and the most excluded people in their day, which would have been the foreigners, 
and the eunuchs, which we're not going to get into. But he, Isaiah 56 uses that to make the point. Um, and then Jesus taps into that by saying that even the, those people should be included in who's invited into the temple to be part of that house of prayer, right? It should be a house of prayer for all people. And then so he takes that message, that powerful message that Isaiah is proclaiming. It's a house of prayer for all nations, for all people. And he adds on to it, like I said, Jeremiah chapter 7 that says, but you have made it into a den of robbers. So not only is it not a house of prayer for all people, because we're keeping people out, but you've also corrupted the people that you're letting in. This is quite the condemnation that Jesus is loving. It's no surprise that within a few days, Jesus is on a cross, being crucified by these religious leaders who are bearing the brunt of this prophetic uh, condemnation from Jesus. Jesus says the temple isn't a house of prayer for all, but rather has become a den of robbers. This is a phrase that I've heard growing up in the church a million times. Um, but for whatever reason, I really kind of slowed down this year and asked my question, myself questions about what does it mean that it was a den? Like, what is a den? It's a, a place of comfort, <coughs> a place of protection, a place of hospitality, a place uh, of privacy, of care. Um, I remember growing up, um, going to my, my best friend's house across the street, and his dad had a den, and that was the coolest place. We weren't supposed to go play in there. There was a computer and some other stuff, and that was his den. Today, we'll just call those man caves, but like, that's what a den was. It was separate. It was a, a, a sanctuary. It was a safe place. In Jesus' day, it was also used as caves. Robbers and criminals would hide out in these caves, and... Uh, that word, when they said den, would have implications of caves. And you see, a, a den wasn't the place where crimes were committed. And for whatever reason, that's how I always interpreted this. It was a den of, a den of robbers. You know, the, the robbers were there committing the crimes, and Jesus stopped them by turning over the tables. But it wasn't a place where crimes were committed, but it was the place where robbers could go and seek protection, seek comfort. It was their hideout. It was their home. And so if, with that kind of definition of then bouncing around in my head, I asked, what does Jesus mean when he says thief or robber? It's not just someone who picks your pocket or, um, you know, for whatever reason, when I hear robber or thief, I picture somebody dressed all in black, like in the cartoon movies or, you know, whatever, where they're sneaking in the window when nobody's paying attention and they're being all stealthy and they're sneaking in, right? That's what I think of when I hear thief or robber. But the way that Jesus uses this word, the word that he used actually means somebody who will rob you out in the open. Just, just attack the most vulnerable people right out in the open. They're bold and they're shameless and they're more powerful than the person they're attacking. And it includes uh, a meaning that means that they will not hesitate to use violence, that, that it's not beyond them, above them. So it's not somebody sneaking in and picking your pocket when you're not looking. This is somebody assaulting you, attacking you, taking what is yours. This is a thief. This is a robber. And the temple, as Jesus says, has become a den for these robbers. Again, this is quite the criticism, quite the critique that Jesus is levying on this religious uh, institution, the religious leaders on the temple. 
Jesus' statement wasn't that the temple had become a place for swindlers to do some price gouging, like overcharge some people for some doves. Like that was always my interpretation. He was just gouging um, people when they had to pay for sacrificial animals. But his critique actually was a declaration that the temple had become a shelter, the criminal's hideout, the place where wrongdoers felt safe, where they felt protected and comfortable. And yet, at the same time that Jesus was levying this criticism against the temple and its leaders, there was other people paying attention to him, and he was paying attention to them. And these people in the story were the lame and the blind, and Jesus seized them. And they came to him, and he healed them. So in the scene, and I love the way Scripture does this, and it does it more often than we notice, the author here of Matthew paints two pictures and holds them up side by side. There's this contrast between the temple, the way that it is, and Jesus. Here's this temple that's a den of robbers, that's a, a place that houses criminals, wrongdoers. And then here's Jesus healing people freely welcoming the blind and the lame into his presence, restoring, redeeming, healing, forgiving them. And the author puts these two pictures side by side, and as a reader, as a hearer of this message, we cannot help but start drawing conclusions about which one looks more like God intended it to. Which one of these two looks like the kingdom of God? Which one of these two pictures is how God intended it to be? And so this idea of Jesus against the temple, or Jesus more appropriately, as the new temple, is an image that shows up in our scriptures time and time again, if we're paying attention. And so we see Jesus confronting the temple in this moment and its systems of power and its status and its prestige in their society. The temple during Jesus' life is called the second temple. You know why they called it the second temple? Because there was one before it, right? Yeah, you guys are with it. Um, The first temple was built by Solomon, right? Long, long time before Jesus. And the scripture tells us and legend tells us how wonderful and and amazing this temple was. And it wasn't quite as great as Solomon's palace that he built for himself. That was a little bit nicer. But it's still a nice temple. But what happened was Israel, Judah, kind of went down the wrong path. And eventually... Enemy armies came and conquered and exiled them, took them from their homeland, and destroyed the temple and left it in ruins. This was devastating for the people of Israel for a lot of reasons. But the temple was left in ruin. And the people were taken into exile. And, And while they were in exile, the Bible tells us that they dreamed and longed to return to their promised land. And they dreamed, and they longed to return back to worship in Jerusalem at the temple. And after many generations had gone by, they were allowed to return. They were told they could go back and build, rebuild the walls, and rebuild the temple, and restart the worship that they had done there. And so there was the older generation that remembered the temple from their childhood from their younger days, who were anxious to get back and see the temple restored to all its glory. And then there was the younger generations who had grown up hearing about this amazing temple and this amazing place where God's presence dwelt and and just how wonderful and awesome this temple was. But something happened when they got there. Their excitement soon turned to disappointment. They realized they didn't have the resources, the wealth, the power, the construction force that Solomon had. 
And so the temple turned out to be a pretty big disappointment. <laughs> there was fights over how badly the temple was turning out. People were embarrassed by the temple. This is not worthy of our God. This is not worthy of our people. It's important to remember, uh, as all of this frustration over the, the second temple, uh, its construction was going on, it's important to remember that the original place that God dwelt with his people was a tent <laughs> that moved around in the wilderness. So God wasn't demanding a nice, new, fancy temple. This was the people's expectations that were not being met by the construction of the second temple. God lived in a tent and was perfectly happy with that. This is the people that said, looked at this new construction and said, this isn't enough. This isn't good enough. It's not significant enough. Nobody's going to look at this and go, oh, wow, look at those people. Look at their God. But in the time of Jesus, there was a king that ruled over Israel, and his name was Herod. We're familiar with King Herod, right? And one of his favorite things to do was to build things. And he didn't just build things for fun. He built them and put his name on them. And if you went to Israel today, you could go to the ruins, and actually some structures still stand, of things that Herod built. And of course, you know that he built them because his name is on them. But one of the things he decided um, as he's trying to cement his legacy was, I'm going to rebuild this temple and make it a wonder of the world. And so he did. The temple got a makeover, a huge makeover under King Herod. The first thing they did was doubled the size of the temple mount. Right? So in the Bible, it says they went up to the temple, they went up to Jerusalem. It's because it's literally a mountain, and you go up the trails to the mountain, and you're on. He took dirt and rock, and think of the amount of construction force and power and resources available to double the size of the mountain that the temple was on. Like, they physically moved a mountain and doubled the size of the temple, the, the base of it, the mount. And then, you know, they started construction, and, and it was going to be ornate and, and decorated and opulent and all, everything you could ever imagine. All the resources of the kingdom um, funneled in to make this great construction. Now, of course, one thing that, that wealthy people know, and obviously King Herod knew this well, is you don't spend your own money to make yourself great. You spend other people's money. And so there was a temple tax instituted. <laughs> so while his name was going to be associated with the building project, the people were going to pay for it. And so this temple tax was instituted so that the temple could be built, but also funded and maintained ongoing. And diaspora Jews, which are people that didn't return from exile, they, even though they weren't living in Jerusalem or living in Israel, they sent money to Jerusalem they paid their temple tax even if they were living around the world elsewhere. It was a big deal. And the people that had longed for the temple to be great again got their wish. The religious leaders saw that Herod could provide for them the power, the status, the prestige that they desired in their community. That, and all of that came along with this impressive temple construction. For the people who felt disappointed or even embarrassed by their life after the exile, that it hadn't turned out the way that they had hoped, that Israel just continued to be a conquered people, that the Romans are now there taking their resources and they were, you know, just went from one conquered people to another conquered people. Herod gave them a way to restore their place in the world or at least take a huge step forward with this temple construction. But the problem with this step forward is that it was a step away from God. 
or at least a step away from what God intended for the temple to be. Right? When religion attempts to establish itself or to grow by partnering with these worldly powers, religion is always the one that is corrupted by the power of the world. Religious leaders' partnership with Herod established the temple and the temple leaders as powerful and influential people in their culture. Man, if you were a chief priest, if you were uh, one of the temple priests or worked in the temple, this was prestige, this was status, this was influence, this was power and wealth. And so they received that with this partnership with King Herod. But in receiving that from King Herod, they lost their prophetic voice. They lost their witness to the people. You see, the people of Israel, as we celebrate on Palm Sunday, gathered around cheering, save us. They were hoping for a Messiah that would do what? (laughs) Free them from the Roman powers, right? (laughs) Meanwhile, their leaders are making deals to enrich themselves, to establish power. They don't want the Romans to leave. Look at all the wealth and power and status that they're accumulating by partnering with the Romans. And so this is why Jesus is such a threat to them. If the people want a Messiah to come in and start a revolution, it's not just the Romans that should be worried, but the religious leaders who gain their power from the Romans. The yeast of Herod is something we've talked about in previous weeks, and that's what's showing up here in the temple. The yeast of Herod, this desire that power and wealth and accumulation of both is the way to live. This yeast of Herod has corrupted the temple, corrupted the temple officials, and even corrupted the practices of the religion. A religious group that was trying to obtain and retain civil and political power eventually found itself worshiping worldly power, worldly status, while compromising its own identity and its own standards. So on one hand, the temple grew and was the greatest thing it had ever been. There had been no temple in the world that outshined this temple in worldly standards. It was a sight to behold. It was impressive. It was amazing. The the amount of power and wealth and resources were, you weren't able to count them. It was incredible. And so this temple had never been greater. But at the same time, it was growing by worldly standards. It was falling and failing terribly by the standards of God's kingdom and God's mission. The problem was that these religious leaders, they loved being the chosen people of God. But they had forgotten what they were chosen for. And Jesus being the true word of God, being the physical presence of God in the world, being the true revelation of God, stood next to this temple. We could make a comparison. And it was, it was made clear for all who had eyes to see who was being faithful to what God had called them to do and to be. And when Jesus stood next to the temple and held up the standard of Scripture and said, what are my people called to do? What is my house called to be? You could see that the temple was so corrupted and so far off the mark, the condemnation came easily. Even the children that were there seeing and listening to Jesus said, He is the Son of David. Even the children could see that Jesus was the one following in the path that God had called Israel to live in. 
Even kids that didn't know about politics and power dynamics and, and the, you know, all the governing things, they could look at Jesus and say, here's this guy healing people. This is what God desires. This temple, eh. But Jesus is the thing that God has called us to be and to do. The temple is the place that robbers are comfortable and safe, says Jesus. However, Jesus was the place where blind and lame people were welcome and restored. The temple had barriers and obstacles in the way to keep out foreigners, to keep out sinners, to keep out the wrong people, to keep out the, the poor, the forgotten, the ones that we don't like. The temple had barriers and obstacles to keep those people away from God's presence. On the other hand, Jesus not only said that God loved those people, but he identified with them. Remember back to the Advent, um, I think it was Advent, maybe Epiphany. I think it was Epiphany. Yeah, it was Epiphany. We'll go with that. Where Jesus was from Nazareth. It might have been an Advent. Anyways, moving forward. Um, Jesus was from Nazareth, and he was always from Nazareth. Nazareth was this poor place, out of the way, backwater, poor village, kind of inward-focused family. <laughs> he says, I'm, I, I'm one of them. You wouldn't let me into this temple either. Jesus was from Nazareth. He never stopped being from Nazareth. And he says, uh, quoting Isaiah chapter 56, verse 8. I don't know if we've got the slide for that. Yeah. He says, For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, for all people. And yet we've built barriers and obstacles and put them in the way. And those barriers and obstacles enrich the rich, make the powerful more powerful. Meanwhile, those who are hurting and suffering hurt and suffer all the more. When Jesus showed up there during Holy Week, the temple was not a house of prayer for all nations. It was a den for robbers. It was a place where powerful and oppressive people were welcomed and made comfortable. And those that were suffering and in desperate need of blessing, and of healing, of redemption, of reconciliation were turned away, were made to suffer all the more. So in keeping with the Lenten practice of hearing difficult truths, of asking ourselves difficult questions, I'm going to ask us today if we want to be like the temple or if we want to be like Jesus. This is a tough question. As a pastor, I wrestle with this question every time we talk about planning ministries, every time we talk about how we're going to invest our resources, every time we talk about what is the church going to do next. Are we going to be like the temple? Or are we going to be like Jesus? The church needs to pay careful attention to who it chooses to welcome and who it desires to make comfortable. You might be thinking that the church of today is nothing like the temple in Jesus' day. In a lot of ways, it's not. But the temptations are still the same. And human nature is still vulnerable to the same sinful desires it was all those many years ago. For example, recently, a leader in the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest evangelical denomination in America, um, the, the man who's in charge of their division on ethics and leadership, started some intense and difficult conversations. When he asked the Southern Baptist Convention to take a hard look at who it was welcoming and making comfortable and who it was not, he stirred up a real hornet's nest with this question. I'm going to tell you what his question was here in a second. But the heart of his question is, who are we welcoming and who are we not? 
And here's what he asked. The leader of the SBC Ethics and Leadership Committee asked why racists and white supremacists felt comfortable in SBC churches and people of color did not feel comfortable and welcomed in SBC churches. And he asked this question not out of the blue, but because several prominent and, and well-known and prospering healthy churches that were African-American or black churches left the SBC because they didn't feel welcome. Conversations about race in America were so divisive and so harmful, they said, we're not going to be a part of this family anymore. And so this man who's in charge of ethics and leadership in the SBC said, why is it that our baptized brothers and sisters in Christ, whose skin color is a little different than ours, not feel like the family? And at the same time, we, as, as a church historically, have, have made this a place where racists and white supremacists have felt comfortable. This was his question to his own church, and of course, it, you, it got the responses you would expect. He asked why the SBC was a den for racists. Why did racists feel like they belonged there when faithful brothers and sisters in Christ felt unwanted and pushed out? He reminded everyone that baptism in Jesus makes us all family together, and yet Christians with a different color of skin didn't feel welcomed like family. And yet, while some were feeling excluded and pushed out, people who said some vile and hateful things and did some vile and hateful things were often welcomed, sometimes even protected by the church. Like I said, Lent has some hard conversations. It's this moment where we pause and we, we step out of the busyness of life and we look at the two kingdoms, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God, and we say, truly, which kingdom do I want to align my allegiance to? Where do I want to place my hope? Where do I want to live? And I'm not trying to dwell on, on the topic of race. Um, it's just such a powerful and real example. And this was going on in real time just a few weeks ago as I was preparing for the sermon. And I mentioned African-American churches in the SBC. And it led me to a question. I've been doing a lot of study about the history of religion in the U.S. And I just kind of stumbled into this question about why are there black churches in the U.S.? Why are there African-American churches in the U.S.? And the answer was not because people of color didn't want to worship with white people. The answer was this hard truth that because there was a time in American history where the prominent churches, the regular churches, the everyday common Christian churches, became dens for slaveholders. The church... These churches of long ago chose to welcome and cater to the powerful and wealthy slave owners rather than to welcome and make comfortable these people that had been taken from their homelands, who had had their children stripped away from them. They had been treated worse than animals and forced to work without any benefits from their labor. Churches in our history chose the wealthy and the powerful in society and welcomed the influential, those with power and wealth, into their into their midst and made them comfortable and welcomed them while turning their back on the very people God had called them to care for. They decided they would rather be successful in the eyes of the world than in the eyes of God. I said, this is some hard truths. And this isn't meant to be a sermon on racism, um, and that's not where I'm going with the rest of the message, but these examples actually are meant to reinforce the point that I want you to understand today. The church needs to pay a careful attention to who it chooses to welcome and who it chooses to push away. Abuse in the church. We hear scandals. 
more often than we should. It's been a few weeks since the, the latest one, but it, there's probably been 10 within the last year that you can point to. Megachurch is one of the ones that make the news, but there's scandals at the, at the smaller, regular-sized churches as well. And what happens when a victim of abuse or scandal comes forward and, and, and declares their statement, says, I've been hurt by this leader? The victims who speak out, they get attacked. They get harassed. They get blamed. Oftentimes, the, the one doing the abuse gets protected there was a story uh, of a, a pastor who was accused of all types of vile abuse in the children's ministry. When the story went public, uh, it, it divided the church, it divided the, some talks along the denomination. And when that pastor stood behind the pulpit the next week, he got a standing ovation from his congregation. He had done some vile things and the church stood up to defend and protect him. A few weeks ago, a young man killed eight people in Georgia, and the comments that are coming out of that story was that he was a faithful attender of a church. He was a young man that came through the youth group. He was always involved in the programs. He was uh, a good Christian young man, is what his youth pastor called him. They saw nothing standing out that would have ever indicated that he would do such a vile thing. A few years ago, I was... Um, kind of doing staff pastor work at a large church, and I was doing divorce care ministries. Um, it wasn't a large ministry in this church, but it was, I think, an important one. And it's probably one of my favorite things that I've done as a pastor is take these people that are going through the most difficult moments of their lives and really not even sure which ends up and getting together with them every week and talking to them and sharing with them hope and good news about life ahead. It was a powerful program. And I'm still friends with many of the people that, that went through that program. Um, and as we saw some of the benefits, as we saw people coming to faith or coming to stronger faith through this divorce care ministry, I had a pastor at the church, another pastor come up to me and say, it's really cool what's going on with divorce care, but just be careful. You might attract too many of those kind of people. My heart broke. What are we doing if not to be attracting those kinds of people to Jesus? Who the church welcomes and who the church wants to make comfortable is a direct reflection on our hearts and on our mission. But the point today is not to criticize the church. <laughs> After all of that, the point isn't to criticize the church. Because I think deep down, we all know that churches are filled with people. And people get things wrong. And when you put us in groups together, we can make things really messy. <laughs> right? That's what we do, right? And so the point isn't to criticize the church. But the good news is, and there is good news in this, the good news is that the Bible doesn't tell us that the world will know we are Christians because we're perfect. Right? It doesn't say they'll know you are Christians because you never make a mess. You know you are Christians because you get it right every time. No, the Bible says they will know that you are one of Jesus' people because of our love for one another. And so... so the church isn't supposed to be perfect. We're not going to get it right every time. But let's not just move on and pretend like everything is fine when it's not. Let's actually choose to confess our sins, our errors, repent, which means to change our mind or to turn around and go a different way, um, and grow more Christ-like. And so the question after all of this is how do we do that? How do we make sure that we are, as God's people, 
as God's chosen people, are welcoming and reaching and caring for the people that God has called us to welcome and to care for. Not to seek our own uh, well-being, not to seek our own status and, and security and place of comfort, but to, to welcome those that need it most. How do we do that? Well, a great place to start comes from Jesus in our scripture today. He just stands up and declares, My house is to be a house of prayer for all people. When Jesus arrives at the temple, he declares God's purpose for the temple is to be a house of prayer that all people are welcome in. All nations. So first, it must be a house of prayer. A church must be a house of prayer. It's not primarily a social gathering. It's not primarily a place of learning, a school. It's not primarily a business or a community center. Although there are missional elements of all of those things, and a church would be doing well to embrace all those different dynamics. But primarily, according to Jesus, my house needs to be a house of prayer. And what that means is not a building where prayer happens, but a group of people that pray. Right? We are the body of Christ. This is a good foundation of any church. Prayer. Sincere and authentic prayer will ultimately shape the type of church that we will become. How we pray will set the direction and shape who we will be. And it's not just that praying you know, will prompt God to give us what we want or what we need. But prayer is a spiritual practice that shapes us. And I want you to catch this truth, and I think I have a slide for it. Do we have the, the next thing? I'm throwing, the tech team's been going through some changes on some of the tech stuff, and then I'm throwing videos and all kinds of stuff at them too, and they just are taking it like champs. Um, so I appreciate those guys. Uh, prayer works to reveal our hearts. Prayer works to reveal what's in our hearts, and at the same time, it shapes our hearts. Prayer does both. Who and what are we praying for reveals what's on our hearts, what's on our minds. Who and what we pray for reveals our character, our nature, what we desire in the world to be. But prayer also shapes us. Have you ever committed to pray for someone that was hurting you or had had done you wrong? Have you ever committed to pray for someone you didn't like? Say, over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to commit to pray for them. Have you ever prayed for your enemies, as Jesus commands us to do in Matthew chapter 5? My experience has been that I cannot pray for someone and continue to wish bad things for them. I cannot pray for someone and not begin to hope that God does work in their lives. I cannot pray for someone and not care for them causing pain in my life. And of course I'm talking about sincere and authentic prayer, not, um, you know, dear God who, you know, hurt that guy's ankle um, (laughs) because he did me wrong, or, um, you know, those types of spiteful or superficial prayers, but like deep and authentic prayer. As we pray for people, we find out what we truly feel about them, right? If I go to pray for somebody that I'm having a conflict with and I start to pray, like, God, bring them peace and healing, and may they succeed in, their, in what you've called them to do. Like, there will come a moment in there where I will run up against the boundaries of what I wish for that person. Where their success or their growth or their for- receiving of forgiveness or mercy bothers me. <laughs> I will find the limit of my compassion, of my grace. My heart will be revealed to me. 
when I go to pray for others. You can see how prayer does this. But also at the same time that it reveals our heart, it shapes our heart. It forms us into loving and caring people that the spirit living in us starts to bear real fruit. If I am authentically and sincerely praying for someone, then my heart and my mind gets tangled up in the details of their lives. I begin paying attention to what they're going through. I begin paying attention to what they're experiencing. And suddenly I have new eyes. When I'm praying for someone, God allows us to see that person the way that God sees them. I see God at work in their lives and begin seeing that God's love is great to give his children. Not only to this person that has hurt me, for example, but also I'm reminded that I have hurt others, and God still loves me. I'm reminded that I don't get it right every time, and God still loves me. And so it's, it's, it's a reminder of God's goodness in all of this. It's a reminder that God's forgiveness is a gift, as the Apostle Paul would say, what can I say? So as we near the end of Lent, I'm inviting you to commit to the discipline of prayer. Commit to the discipline of prayer. Make it a priority. Understand the impact that it's going to have on you and commit to it. Why am I asking you this? Because without a regular time of prayer, we will find other ways of dealing with our problems. We will find other ways of addressing our concerns. We will. It's what we do. We problem solve. And if we're not turning to God in prayer, we're going to turn to something else. And that something else will shape us. It will form us. It will affect our hearts and our minds. And so all I'm asking you to do is to pay attention to what's shaping and forming you and to commit to making it through prayer and God that shapes and forms you. If the church is going to be a house of prayer for all people, then we need to be people who pray. And so that's, you know, during announcements, Paul mentioned pause for prayer on Wednesday nights starting up in a couple of weeks. I'm really looking forward to that. And I hope you are too. I hope to see you there, wherever there is. We haven't quite nailed down the location yet. That's the detail that's coming, not that that's necessary. Um, but in the middle of the busyness of our lives and busyness of the week, this is an opportunity to come together, share praises of what God is doing well in our lives, of what we're celebrating, but also to share our concerns, our anxieties, our concerns for one another. And prayer will lead to welcoming. It always does. Prayer will reveal our hearts where we fall short of living like Jesus. Prayer will shape our hearts, our minds, and our lives in such a way that we welcome others. We forgive others and love people the way that Jesus loved people. If Nazarenes are going to be known as anything in Battle Creek, I would hope and pray that we would be known as a house of prayer for all people. And so I'm going to ask you to invite or to join me in, in prayer conclude this message. And the, the prayer is going to be a prayer of confession that I have uh, shared with you and invited you to join with every time I preach during Lent. It's a prayer of confession, but I want you to, to hear the words of this confession, but also to receive the absolution, the forgiveness that comes with it at the end. We don't always get it right. But God is still good, and God is still merciful. I invite you to join me most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. 
by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry when you humble your son. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your word and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And hear these words today. God is merciful to all who confess their sins. And God is merciful to all who in humility ask for mercy. And so it's in the name of Jesus Christ that your sins are forgiven. I invite you to join our worship team in a time of response.